Hello, David. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. I've had a great week. You know, it's been uh, kind of sunny and stuff here in Ketchikan. I've been walking around a lot, cool. you know. So cool. the snow so is no gone. rain? Like, how, oh, the snow the is snow gone. Is gone. It's dry? It's gone, man. Is it dry? It's, well, I wouldn't call it dry. Dry-ish. <laughs> you know, it's always... Dry-ish. There's a dampness about the place, always. But uh, here in well, the rainforest. We're recording this the last few days of March, and it was 85 degrees yesterday what? here in Ojai. 85. Oh, man. I am jealous. I, I, I'm hoping to be able to leave here in a few weeks, you know, pandemic allowing, and go drive around the Northwest a little bit, man. So Right. Yeah. In in a car or or like one of those um, bicycle those electric bikes. <laughs> no, we have a brand new car that we've only driven once, uh, so we bought it in twenty twenty. How does that work? So you, you in order to buy a car in, in Ketchikan, you have to pretty much either buy it in Ketchikan or buy it cheaper in like Seattle, and then you have to take it on the ferry right from bellingham and we're talking about 1500 dollars each way or the barge oh. is going to cost you about the same amount so each way man so yeah there are no what do you mean each way there are no each well, way I mean, well if you want to go back you know you would bring the car up so we we have not oh, brought oh, the right. car up yet because it's another thousand bucks oh just so leave. you leave it there it's your like yeah, lower 48 yeah, transport yeah, that's what i'm gonna do so maybe well then i got a question yeah. are the are the Cars fifteen hundred dollars more in Ketchikan than they are if you were to buy the same make and model in Seattle. You got to always factor all that stuff in. But we do not have a new car dealership here in town. You cannot buy a brand right. new car off a lot here. They're all used. They're island cars. Right. But why would you want to buy a new car anyway? Like you lose, you know what, three four grand, and second you drive it off a lot. There's the convenience to just walk and do wheeling and dealing with the dealer, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. help with the economy. I should have got a hybrid. I should have got a, you know, an electric car like you, Dave, but I didn't. Yeah, I'm disappointed. But see, my electric car was free cuz I played the stock market and I uh, oh, those, I got mine for free. Those big ventriloquist bucks. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't big bucks. Huh? I literally bought Tesla low and sold it high. That's how you make free money. I'm envious, man. I'm envious. Oh, well. So today's guest is, uh, that was a crazy rabbit hole or salmon hole that I uh, jumped into last night. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> I studied salmon and and ghost species, and I studied the drainage of the Snake River, and there, do you know that there was a hot spot, right? A hot spot is a place where the crust is thin and volcanoes pretty much come out of there. Hawaii is a hot spot. But these hot spots stay in one place as the continental crust or the oceanic crust move over them. What? Really? Yes. Yeah. So the Yellowstone hot spot, which is the, where it lives right now, okay. was once in Oregon. But wait a minute, you're saying the volcanic spot stays the same, but in the meantime, all the rest of the Earth's crust is moving? The plates move over them. So the North American plate is shoving over, but the hot spot's in the same spot? Yes, yes. Same thing with Hawaii. Hawaii, there's a, a, there's a, a weakening in the oceanic crust, and as the crust moves, the island chain is formed. Hmm, wow. So... So this hotspot that moved across uh, Idaho, and I sent you that photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, created pretty much this basin for the Snake River. 
and allowed the Snake River to flow through it because it created all these volcanics and and, um, and the Snake River is connected to the Columbia River, right? Right, which that. is connected to the Pacific right. Ocean. So I, I'm glad that you went down this this rabbit hole, the salmon hole, as it were, because our guest today <laughs> is all about well, salmon and freshwater fishes of North America. And uh, yeah, we we like to dig in deep on all the stuff. And I'm reading books half the time, and I'm preparing. But right. I'm really but tell me what is this ghost? It's called a ghost species. Ghost lineage. What is this ghost thing? lineage. What is a ghost lineage? Well, actually, today we're going to be talking salmon with our guest and uh, and freshwater fish. Our guest is Gerald Smith. Gerald Smith. Jerry Smith. Jerry Smith. Yeah, from the University of Michigan. And uh, let's say we'll be talking about a salmon, a very the dawn salmon, eel salmo. All right, from Dawn. The Dawn. Her name is Dawn. No, it's the salmon. The first the salmon. salmon. This is the, from 55 million years ago, the middle of the Eocene, and then, right? In the Eocene, there's beautiful fossils of them found. And then there's... Wait, wait, hold on. Well, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. I'm trying so to explain the ghost a, lineage to you, I know, dude. But, I know, but, but hold on. But you're saying that, let's say, 56 million years ago, there was no salmon. They just magically appeared, and suddenly they magically appeared in the fossil record, or they magically appeared on planet Earth? Well, there are big gaps in the fossil record. It's not continuous right. because stuff erodes away or it's blown away course, or whatever, you know. Course. So, yeah. But what was the thing before it wasn't a salmon? Well, was it just a big fish? That's where we have a ghost lineage before it. <laughs> and we have a ghost oh. lineage. We don't know exactly. See, these are linking things together. We see the characteristics. And there are ocean fish that have a lot, from what I understand, because I'm an artist. Right. We're talking about Eosamo is found in fossil deposits in British Columbia and Washington and uh, maybe up in the Yukon, too. It's from the Eocene period. And then there's a gap in the fossil record. We don't we don't have fossil fish showing right. salmon evolution, you know, in the next 20, well, actually up to maybe until the Miocene. So... We're, we, 20 million so we years have ago. to put together, that's the ghost lineage. Like, oh, and then suddenly there's all these salmon species and they're diversifying. Right. But we see all the characteristics in between. And yeah, like before. So you can imagine, you can scientifically predict how these fish evolved because of what they were and what they end up. And that they must have taken certain transitional evolutionary paths in order to get to where they are when they reappear in the fossil record. Right, so right? What, when fossil salmon show up again, there's already Atlantic salmon, the genus Salmo on the East Coast, okay? And there's right. a split between the Pacific salmon and the Atlantic salmon, but there's no fossil evidence of where that split ex happened exactly. Right. They haven't right. dialed it in. And, so the, there's, and the Pacific salmon is called Uncarinchus, like, right? Um, yeah, Uncle. That's a, that's a weird, weird Well, I mean, it's hooked snout, much like this. Oh, my God, there's an Uncarinchus on here. Yeah, wipe it off. Wipe it off. And, uh, and so the genus Samo is the Atlantic salmon, but finding the exact point where they split, we don't have it, but we have all these other fossils, and so there's a ghost lineage. You have to kind of fill in the gaps. So that's it. I get it now. But tell me, what was the fish that is in the late Cretaceous that is related to the present-day salmon? That's where they go, oh, yeah, that's pretty much a salmon-esque type fishy. We, and it probably evolved into the salmon. I would like to know that because when I actually started going down this rabbit hole myself some 30 right. odd years ago, and this is kind of a weird segue, but I read a poem by my favorite hippie poet, Richard Brodigan, 
<laughs> and uh, there's a line in one of his poems called The Fish Music, and it said, And the trout waited patiently for the dinosaurs to go away. And I thought, well, that's oh. such a beautiful phrase. And so that's actually where I, I called up my fish scientist friends down at the University of Washington, and they said, well, yeah, you know, and I asked them, were there trout in the Cretaceous? Are the, did the crowd right. just, trout wait till the dinosaurs went away? Because it just right. implies all these, you know, species come and species go. But that's when they said, well, you know, we don't have any true trout. We don't have fossil evidence for them. But there was this uh, young graduate student down there who said, but do you know about the saber-tooth salmon? And I said, no, you're making this up. What? That's when, that's when you found out about the saber-tooth? Yeah. Well, the tusk... What do they call the tusk? The t well, Jerry calls it the tusk tooth salmon. I call it the spike tooth salmon because recent fossils. Right, spike tooth. Because the right. recent fossils show this that there's spikes, more or less. And they stick out. But they don't stick I down. Was led like to, I was led cat. to it, and that's the way my little creative brain works. Right. This poem right. led me to it, the fish music. The trout that's, waited that's patiently. That's very beautiful, that And poem. I did a drawing about it, but yeah, we don't have trout from the Cretaceous. We don't have them, or salmon. But wait a minute. But didn't Jerry turn trout from trout into salmon? He took the western trout and showed that they were actually in the Oncorhynchus, that they were in the Oncorhynchus genus, and now you understand genus and species. Right, right. right. And what did all those fishermen in the 50s going to all those lodges think they were? They called them trout. They thought they were more closely related to, uh, yeah, like brown trout, and and uh, they were actually in the genus of the Atlantic salmon, salmo. Right, right. They were salmo gardneri. Till Jerry came along. My first fish was a rainbow trout. When I was I, I was fishing in the Sierras uh, when I could hold a rod. But but Dave, that was actually a salmon. You're right. Sorry. My first fish was a <laughs> salmon trout. Rainbow salmon well, trout. Well, yeah. Well, Let's get Jerry to... Uh, he didn't clear uh, this all up for us. Let's we we can find out all about uh, salmon and trout and and who who is named who and yeah Uncle Uncle Rinkus yeah, yeah. don't you have an uncle named Uncle Rinkus Uncle Rinkus Uncle Rinkus and the genus Salmo <laughs> and all that good stuff let's call up Jerry and let's uh, you got to meet him man I've met him a couple times over the years I'm super excited he is really one of my paleo heroes he's a paleo ichthyologist means prehistoric fish guy and there are not a lot cool. of them on the planet so. Dial him up, man. Let's, let's ring him up for him. All right, do the thing. Hey, David Strassman, meet Gerald R. Smith. We're going to call him Jerry here in the show because, well, I know him. He's an emeritus professor of ecology and evolutionary biology and geological sciences and emeritus curator at the Museum of Zoology and the Museum of Paleontology at the University of Michigan. And he is a paleoichthyologist and a very nice guy. Hey, Jerry, thank you for joining us today. And meet my pal here, David Strassman. Oh, hey, Jerry. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, David. Yeah, I've read uh, so much of your work. And you have just, uh, you are prolific as far as how into the fishy salmon trout world. It is absolutely mind-boggling is what it is. Yes. And one of the very first questions we ask anyone on this show is, Jerry, are you a paleo nerd? Oh, definitely. <laughs> yes. How did you become a paleo nerd? What, what, what's your background? Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in California and grew up in Salt Lake City, went to college at the University of Utah, and then went to the University of Michigan, where I took a paleontology class and worked on my first project, something in southwest Kansas, with Claude oh, really? 
W. Hibbard, and uh, that was published. And from that point on, I never left paleontology completely. Uh, it was the nature of my job that I had to work a little bit on the Great Lakes in Michigan, but uh, I always had a paleo project going. And since I retired about 20 years ago, I've worked almost exclusively on paleo-related projects. Well, tell me about that first that first uh, work that you did in Kansas. What was the what did you work? And you, is that where you took a dive into paleontology? You got the paleo bug then. What, Definitely. What did you work on there? I was taking a course from Claude Hibbard, and we had to do a project. So I identified yeah. the fish bones from the Mount Scott local fauna in Mead County, Kansas. Uh, Sangamonian in age, late, middle, late Pleistocene. And with that, I started to work on paleoecology, try to interpret the environment from the fishes. And that's what I've always tried to do since then. Wow, that is that is so cool. You know, it's it's really, it's an interesting story how I, I, I came across your work. Uh, I've lived here in Ketchikan for 38 years. I found out about this really weird, big, gigantic salmon once upon a time, and I thought, no, they're making it up. It's a saber-toothed salmon. <laughs> I started reading up on it. But wait a and minute. After... But he calls it the tusk. What do you call what? it? The tusk salmon. We're just... Right. He calls it the tusk tooth. I call it... I now call it the spike tooth because oh, right. the recent discoveries show that the, That's the, right. the teeth are sideways. But... But I found that as I was reading up in the literature and I wanted to know about prehistoric salmon, all roads led to you. And I was reading these papers and then I realized, wait a minute, your son, Keith, lives here in Ketchikan <laughs> and he runs the local theater. Yep. The, the, he works at the nonprofit theater here. And I was just, uh, and I talked to Keith the other day and he knows quite a bit about prehistoric salmon as well. That's good. Uh, and I will follow you in calling it the spike tooth salmon. I think that's a good compromise <laughs> from where we started. Wow. There we go. Confirmation, Ray. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that fish and your work with it? Uh, we're talking about Oncorhynchus rastrosus. It, it's a giant fish, and you and I actually worked together on kind of a small paper about the size of it. Right. When I was a graduate student, it was described here at Michigan by Robert Miller and Ted Cavender, who gave it the name um, Smilodon, ichthys. Smilodon ichthys, which is kind of a dumb name. And <laughs> they failed to recognize what the relationships, they failed to recognize that it was a salmon uh, in the hmm. salmon oh. genus, Oncorhynchus. Why, what uh, did they think it was? Whole new thing. Well, it, those were the days when Anything that was just a little bit different, or especially if it was a lot different, they put it in a different genus. And so they had to make up this name. The teeth are very short. Uh, the base is bigger in diameter than the length of the tooth. So saber tooth was not exactly the right name. Right, right. Right. Oh, my goodness. Ray, what are you holding up there? Oh, my goodness. I I'm holding up a 3D print of Oncorhynchus oh rastrosus, my. the spike tooth salmon. This is from, this was one that was in the private collection. And when I first uh, drew this animal, I had some feedback from you and your colleagues that maybe the teeth were oriented Can sideways. Can you smile as you say that? I'm going to take a photo 
Take a, everybody smile and say, hey, yeah. Man, that's it. Done. So these tusk-like teeth, you determined that this actually was a salmon, Oncorhynchus. It's in the Oncorhynchus, not Smilodonychthys. So you right. changed the genus um, and pointed out that it is truly a salmon. You also pointed out that it, it had an inordinate number of gill rakers. And Correct. so, therefore, you concluded it was maybe a plankton feeder? Yes. So if it's a plankton feeder, why the big teeth? Uh, the big teeth and the orientation of the teeth indicate pretty strongly that those were structures that females used to get and guard nests and males used mm. to control a female in a nest for themselves. Mm. So uh, you've both seen uh, spawning salmon and how they move. It's really appropriate to have these spikes on the side of the snout <laughs> rather than pointing into the mouth because in their fighting, they no doubt swish back and forth, move their heads back and forth in fighting. Ah, and they're so, pushing others out of the way, right? That's right. And no other salmon or salmon does that, except the little one that I later found in uh, Idaho. Right, you found a dwarf species of uh, the saber, the spike tooth salmon. I keep calling it saber tooth. <laughs> right. But a dwarf species. Uh, up by Boise, actually. That led to the puzzle of how did it get there? And through the distribution of other fish, we knew that uh, it didn't get there through the Columbia because the Columbia didn't have salmon at that particular time. It had to come up to Sacramento, and the Sacramento had to be where the upper Snake River drained because it was in the upper Snake River. Before we dive into the drainages, I just want how big. You and I worked together <laughs> in this paper. I showed you, I showed you some some uh, vertebrae that I'd seen in the San Diego right. Museum of Natural History and the L.A. County. They were the size of marlin, and and I got together with you, corresponded with you, and this these are almost what two inches a, a, across. Almost, yeah. How big? You're the guy. I, I, you first came up with a number of fourteen feet or so, and I was really excited. But then you kind of dialed it back, and we're, how big was how this? How big salmon? was this? Yeah. Saber tooth? No, it's not. Wait, spike tooth salmon. How big was this <laughs> spike tooth salmon, Jerry? Right. Together, Ray and I figured that it was uh, just over eight feet long, the biggest one we know. Wow. The uh, estimates of the weight go from my calculations based on fishery, salmon fisheries calculations of 450 pounds at least. And wow. other estimates suggest at least 800 pounds, which would be okay, except that would be a pretty fat salmon. And I don't think it would have been able to swim up to spawn. So what what but test I'll line take... would I use? Would I use a 100 yeah. pound test or 200 pound test for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Use something you'd normally fish for sharks with. Yep. Not long after our interview, Jerry sent us an email with more thoughts on the giant spike tooth salmon and its fighting spikes. First, the spikes are enlarged beyond any teeth in similar sized fish or other aquatic creatures. Second, they are constructed of the densest, heaviest bone possible at great expense to construct and to carry around on the snout. Third, Although they are worn from being washed around in sand for five to 10 million years, 
well-preserved specimen shows sharp points similar to a very sharp salmon tooth. Fourth, salmon mussels are primarily lateral and able to apply hundreds of pounds of force from side to side. Think of a one-pound geology hammer sharpened and wielded by 400 pounds of muscle. The spikes could easily kill a 200-pound shark or a dolphin and injure a rival spike tooth salmon. And just imagine if you landed one in your boat. Oh, man. But those fillets be oh so tasty. Mm. Yeah, 800-pound test. And so these, these enormous plankton-feeding salmon were working their way all up into the, uh, into the drainages in the northwest, into Idaho. So that led to the work on connecting these massive river systems. But wait, I have a question just on salmon in general. When did they become a species that spawned in the freshwater, made their way and lived their life in the ocean? Were they one or the other? Did they start in the ocean? They probably originated with most of the life history in the ocean, but spawning in freshwater right from the beginning. Their ancestors probably spawned in fresh water, and it was going to sea that was the miracle of evolution of salmon, going to sea to feed and coming back upstream to spawn. And that's because the food is abundant in the ocean, but predators are abundant on uh, baby fish in the ocean. So swimming upstream in fresh water, way upstream up into the headwaters, meant that their eggs were able to develop with almost no predators except minnows oh, and suckers. Right. There's a the earliest salmon, Eosamo, goes back to the Eocene. Correct. So this is after the Cretaceous extinction. Yes. Fish suddenly diversify like crazy. Freshwater fish and teleos in general in the oceans diversify. And Eosamo is a pretty big salmon. And it was Eosamo anadromous at that point, 55 million years ago? What? A, a what? Anadromous? Eosamo. No, Eosamo. Yeah, but you anadromous. said a word, anadromous. Anadromous. <laughs> uh, that means exactly what Jerry was just talking about, being uh, born in freshwater, going okay. out to the ocean and coming back. Okay. Right, Jerry? And, yes. Yeah. And a teleost, let me just say. Teleost. A teleost, thank you. A teleos is 96% of all boned fishes, all right? Correct. Everything from a 25-foot oarfish to a giant sunfish to um, a sunfish you'd find in a, in a lake. Right. What is not a teleos? Sharks, lungfish. Ah. ah. Lungfish, us. We're, we are not. We're not ray-finned fish. So really, seriously, lungfish and coelacanths and sharks are not teleos. So teleos are also called the ray-finned fish, right? Yes. Okay, but they're fish, go. though. They're not. Why? They're they're fish. Yeah. They're, they're not mammals. No, correct. All right. The, uh, all of these things the are fish. Fish. The lungfish evolved into our our yes. our yes. whole. God. Group. Okay. 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 But Eosamo was it anadromous? Was it also going out to sea to spawn or uh, to to feed and then come we back? We don't know uh, because uh, I've never had specimens of that. Uh, those continue to be worked on by Mark Wilson in Alberta and also in Chicago. And the way we determined these others were anatomous is to look at the isotopes of oxygen and other chemicals still in the bone to see whether they ever spent part of their life 
in the ocean. And it's pretty clear uh, oh. that because the chemicals of the bone, at least after the very center of the growth of the bone, uh, fish vertebrae have rings just like trees, tree rings. And so from the chemistry of the main growth part of the rings of the salmon, we can see that they had been into salt water. But the other thing that's pretty remarkable is that the growth rate is uh, astounding. You mentioned those uh, 100 gill rakers. Sockeye salmon, their closest relatives, have 40 in living forms and up to 50 in fossil forms. But it appears that they grew that entire huge weight and length in four years. Wow. So that means they were tapping into plankton just like uh, baby whales. So we're talking about the spike tooth salmon growing so big in three or four years. Yes. Because the, the plankton at the time, so you can extrapolate out that the ocean was different oceanic conditions and super rich plankton and there's yeah, all but, kinds but of salmon. Elephants species. grow to almost full size in a couple of years. Yeah. But well, no other fish. I do too if I eat a lot of cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> no other fish uh, grow to that size so fast, except the whale shark. They're planktivorous. Oh, right. Hmm. Right. Interesting. So, also with, with all of the work you've done, you are one of the few paleoichthyologists who really works on modern day fish and fossil fish at the same time. Right. You are the fellow who is responsible for turning trout into salmon. And I bet you got a lot of uh, a lot of mail about that because all the textbooks had to start calling steelhead, start calling them salmon and stop calling them trout. So you and, and Sterling did a paper that actually moved the genus of steelhead and cutthroats into Oncorhynchus. Oncorhynchus mycus, right? Correct. Can you tell us how you came to that conclusion, you and your uh, colleague? Uh, from looking at fossils and looking at the bones of all of these Western American salmon, as well as the bones of Salmo, the European and East Coast and Atlantic salmon and brown trout, and finding that if you look at the bones, they're easy to tell apart, and that uh, what used to be Salmo gardneri, the rainbow trout, is clearly a relative of the Pacific salmon, not a relative of the Atlantic salmon. And the Atlantic salmon is called Salmo, whereas the, the Pacific salmon is called Oncorhynchus. Right, and those names come down to us from the 1870s and 80s. So we didn't choose the names, we just assigned the fish to the right ones. Well, that's why when people are buying what they think is uh, Pacific salmon in the store, you know, it's really, if it's, if it's an Atlantic salmon, it's a different genus altogether. It's a right. different, it's not Pacific salmon at all. Atlantic salmon are Salmo, and the Pacific salmon is Oncorhynchus. And now steelhead, also known as rainbow, and then cutthroats through the work that you guys did are now officially considered salmon. But... It's like changing the English language. People just well, are going to keep calling them trout. But Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to put it the way you did. I would say right, that okay. they're the names of the fish. That's one thing. 
and there are Atlantic okay. salmon, Pacific salmon, Salmo, and Oncorhynchus. And then there are two life histories. And each of those genera, each of those names, can come in two different life histories. So there are brown trout that migrate to the sea, and there are Atlantic salmon that are landlocked. Mm -hmm. So those are two life histories, and we find the same two life histories in Pacific salmon. But in addition to that, the Pacific salmon have evolved into two groups. One of them mm. that predominantly can be totally inland. Landlocked, you mean like a kokanee? Yeah, yeah. So the kokanee is a landlocked sockeye salmon. And so, oh, right. so that's a, a way to avoid calling hatchery rainbow trout salmon because they're, they have the trout life history and they do not have the salmon bones or the salmon life history. They can and you're not have... going to get some fishermen to change the name either. It's just right. we're changing well, the history, not the name. Right. What I do images is say, these are the five Pacific salmon, uh, and I draw them all, and then it's like, but wait, uh, you know, steelhead is also a salmon, and a cutthroat is also a salmon. It's it's the science artist yeah. Yeah. conflict hey, with it, but, and the language. Well, yeah, and so change the language so that you can say that uh, there are Pacific salmon and Pacific trout, and that some of each of those have uh, a life history of going to sea or not, or staying in Okay. Life. When you did this name change, did you actually get pushback or people that were kind of angry about the whole thing? Yeah, I got people in Washington, Oregon, nobody from Alaska that I know of, said, don't come out here, you're going to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a few cards and letters? How dare you, sir? Emails. Yeah, that, <laughs> okay. that was right. Got... I have a question about fish in lakes. Yes. Freshwater fish in lakes. I believe uh, there is a I, I'm thinking it's a little pupfish in a spring in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Right. Lakes appear and disappear based on geology, weather, ice dams that break and create floods and flood huge basins and the water drains. Some of it stays in lakes. But there are lakes that have existed for millions of years. How do the fish get there if it was never a, a, a route to the sea? Or are all lakes connected to the ocean at one point in time? No, but all of those that have uh, fish that go to the ocean do. And that's pretty much, of although it's circular reasoning, that's, that's how we come to those kind of conclusions until we started this chemistry work that told us whether the fish had been to the sea. So much of the Great Basin, where most of my work occurs, have minnows and suckers and trout and sculpins. And a few million years ago, they also had sunfish that are now uh, mostly back east, one species in California. You mean uh, the bluegill? Catfish. Yeah. Well, the bluegills are back east. In California, 
there's a fish called a Sacramento perch, but it's actually a beautiful right. little sunfish. Oh. And by the way, the little devil's hole pupfish near Death Valley is this fish. Oh, really? Ah, no way. There. I just read about that, and they're trying to huh? save. They actually moved. They moved the spring to save the habitat. Yeah. Well, to save the fish. Are they endangered? As, as, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. really know they, about the pupfish. They, they only exist in this one location. That's it. Nowhere else on the planet Earth. Well, right. And they're this big. <laughs> they're a couple of inches, less than two inches long, less than an inch and a half for the devil's hole pupfish. But it has relatives just over the hill in Owens Valley and in the uh, Death Valley Desert area in the Amargosa River. There are other species of pupfish. But the one that has just a few dozen in bad times and a few hundred in good times that live in this gash in the desert mm. is endangered because there are farmers around there that are drilling wells and taking the water. And so the water in this fish's habitat keeps getting scarcer and scarcer going down into the mm. hole. But a pupfish mm. conservancy duplicated the exact gash in the rock with the holes and the the rock formation. I mean, almost like they took a laser image mm. of it, recreated it and duplicated it. And that is where the pupfish now live in a, a hole that is not that the water is not uh, based on the aquifer rising and lowering, it now has a steady source of, of water. Is that, I'm pretty sure that's... That's that's basically true, although I think there's still some remaining in the original Devil's Hole. Right, right. As right. well as the transplanted population that's doing well in the new habitat that was created. But back to your question... Uh, those things went from lake to lake, those pupfish. And in fact, all of the minnows and suckers in the Great Basin have been there for probably 40 million years, just going from lake to lake, depending wow. on the local geology and climate, never connected to the sea. But the trout, uh, well, the trout too, that are in the Great Basin do not have any connection to the sea because the Great Basin of Utah, Nevada, Idaho, southern Idaho, and southern Oregon are landlocked. They're lakes with no outflow. Mm. But but there once was a, a connection to the sea. Otherwise, the fish, how did the fish get there? That's what I'm kind of asking here. Right. Well, for some of these fish, the only connection to the sea was many millions of years ago. And for 40 or 50 million years, uh, they and their ancestors have been completely freshwater with no way to go to the sea. There's quite a split between the 15 or 20,000 marine species and the 10,000 of freshwater species all over the world. Hmm. Well, your, your work through all these years, Jerry, you were determining via fossils uh, right. and the isotopes, you were, began to really put together the puzzles of this these ancient river systems in the West. And there was the whole Snake River drainage, and you began to connect it. Just, did salmon come from that Snake River drainage, or were they from the Great Valley of California? Or is it not that simple? 
Well, at different times, they were both from the Sacramento and the Columbia mm. with headwaters back upstream in California, Oregon, and even Idaho, but not Utah. So it's hard to say when that started, but because the oldest fossils we have of them are from deep lakes in Idaho that are mm. up to 10 million years old. We don't have any fossils from California that old, but we know these fish came from California because the Sacramento drainage has all of the minnows and suckers that oh. ended up in the Snake River Plain. So none of those guys have been to sea for a long time, except in the lake called the Chalk Hills Lake in southern Idaho has four species of salmon and one species of trout and a char that all originally had to have had some association with waters in California and Oregon. We don't know which ones. Are they landlocked in Chalk Hills Lake? Not all of them. No, some of them actually right. went to sea uh, through a river that is not really well known to geologists. Before Hell's Canyon, the Snake River drained across southern Oregon and into the Klamath and Sacramento drainages uh, when they were connected at various ways in different times, uh, right there at the northern boundary of California. Hmm. Um, right now, the Snake River, the, its headwaters are in the Tetons. Correct. And it's an amazing river because it's it does. It snakes all the way around. It flows westward. Then it flows north and joins the Columbia River uh, in Idaho. Right. But you're saying at one time it had flowed south and joined the Sacramento drainage, or it began in the Sacramento drainage and still flowed into the Columbia? Oh, no. It flowed from the Snake River across southern Oregon into the Klamath and Sacramento drainages until 2.8 million years ago when the big lake that was a 1,000 feet deep called the Glens Ferry Lake in southern Idaho was uh, as big as Lake Ontario in the Great Lakes. Mm, uh, really? Got deep enough, high enough uh, in the local topography to spill over and be captured by a little tributary to the Salmon River. And from that point on, uh, 2.8 million years ago on, it has taken this northern route through Hell's Canyon to connect with the Columbia and go to sea. But before that, the fish had to have gotten there by way of the Sacramento River swimming upstream into this. From San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. Swam under the bridge. Wow. <laughs> So was that was glaciation one of the driving forces in changing the landscape so radically, or was volcanics, or, or not? Volcanics, volcanics and glaciation? Well, really? No, this all happened before glaciation, mm. because glaciation in North America, the Pleistocene, started about two and a half million years ago, and all this took place. That big switch occurred two point eight million years ago. So. All this prior history of evolution of salmon was, uh, for the most part, well before glaciation started in the North, North America. Interesting. 
So the salmon species were very diverse actually before the Ice Age. They make it through the Ice Age. Why did big, big salmon like Oncorhynchus rastrosus, a.k.a. the spike-toothed salmon, right. did they need big rivers to survive? They, they are in the ecosystem before the Ice Age, and then they're gone. They don't, I mean, once the Ice Age happens, is it because the, their habitat disappeared, Jerry, they needed big rivers, or and there was the dwarf species that was isolated? Why, why can't I go catch one now? Uh, <laughs> you don't have the right lure, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have very limited uh, fishing skills anyways, but I am curious why maybe, are, are big fish much more vulnerable to environmental pressures, or was it just the changing landscape, you think, or is this of any interest uh, in solving well, this puzzle? There's a lot of interest in it, and uh, some of us think about it a lot, but we don't have an answer. I do. Yeah, we don't have any answer okay. except two that are pretty solid suggestions. One is if the fish weighed 800 pounds, it would have been too deep-bodied to swim very far up the Columbia. Uh, mm -hmm. and especially couldn't have swum into some of the little tributaries down by uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Monterey, and even down as far as San Diego. They wouldn't have been able to go very far up those little tributaries. So that's one limitation. The Miocene was peculiarly rich in plankton. Mm. And so not only the salmon, but uh, a lot of the marine mammals, for example, really peaked in the Miocene. There was something about the oceans and the temperatures and the upwelling of nutrients along the West Coast and the East Pacific that was really favorable to planktonic fish. Mm. The other thing of interest is that when the glaciation started, there were probably over 20 cycles. We see there are 20 marine cycles. We don't see evidence of all 20. We only see four or five cycles of glaciation in North America. And these cycles were very peculiar in that the ice ages lasted uh, probably 90,000 years. And there was lots of water, but it was very cold, which was just fine for salmon. But then there were 10,000-year periods at the end of each of those 100,000-year ice cycles that were dry, like today, with deserts. So all these fish probably were doing very well in London, up the tributaries, during the wet part and cold part of each of these glacial cycles. But uh, most of the extinction that occurred, and we do see some extinction, came with the desert conditions that occurred repeatedly wow. in the Pleistocene. So during wow. the intermediary cycles, right. there's less water, it's drier, it's warmer. Uh, yeah. And I would think that during the glaciation, during the spring and summer, even though it's still cold, you'd have a lot of runoff and a lot of water flowing. Great big rivers, rivers that are now a quarter of a mile across could have been a, a, a mile across. Wow. Wow. So, but that changed, those rivers diminished in their expanse, and our big-bodied spike-toothed salmon no longer had a, had a home right. to spawn in. That's right. Huh. That's it makes right. sense. It makes sense, though. They're too big. 
too big for the little amount yeah. of water coming out of the dry deserts. I see, uh, and I I talked to your son, Keith, the other day, or actually just a couple days ago uh, before I talked to you. He was saying that the concept of hybridization has been very important in your work recently. And there's species that hybridize and then that perhaps they come back together. And I'm an artist. Can you explain what that work is about. Yeah, I need an artist to try to explain it to the, to my colleagues. <laughs> well, it's it's not a well accepted idea yet, and so I'm working on it right now, trying to gather together the evidence that will convince people that hybridization really happened, and that sometimes hybrids were fertile and backcrossed into one or the other parental population and influence them. And the way to represent that in a figure would be to show the commonly assumed tree shape with every branch branching into two and on and on to make a tree-like thing that you have drawn for salmon. Right. And instead, draw it as a kind of a branch or maybe turn the whole tree upside down and draw it like a root system where some of the little branches join and form one and they influence each other to look like a vine, not a tree. Wait, is that through sexual reproduction and yes. crossbreeding? Yes. That's how well, that's how the tree branches would join. So basically, yes. so let's take uh, a chum and a dog salmon or a dog salmon a chum yeah and a humpy and if they right they speciate but when they come back together uh and they they do crossbreed there's a chumpy is what people the slang call but you're saying wait that, these exist ray yes a chumpy yeah, exists they, a chumpy does exist so oh. these are sister species that then come back together they spawn but then do those those hybrids then do they actually begin to be fertile and they influence the line so that you diverge and then you come back? Is that what you're saying with your work with the hybrid? Right. In fact, they have to be, the occasional fish has to be fertile right from the beginning to get the to get this uh, hybrid lineage or hybrid lineages established in the first place. But they are not, for the most part, as adapted as the species that gave rise to them. And it's possible that those two were influenced uh, positively in certain kinds of environments and negatively in others. But it's almost the reverse of what we were talking about with the salmon, because except in the case Hmm. of the salmon, which do this, and the chum salmon and sockeye and pinks, chum and pinks are the best example. They probably get together and spawn during bad times when they like to spawn in different places at different times. But during dry, bad, hot times, the rivers are low 
the spawning fish are forced together, and being fish, they turn the eggs and sperm loose into the water, and they don't have any control over who finds whom anymore. So, yeah. wait a minute. So, yeah, lots of amazing. Because uh, the salmon runs happen at different times of the year, right? you'll, you'll have a poor weather event that will yeah. cause a, a late, uh, what's the latest ones that come, Ray? Or the last salmon up the creek? Yeah, yeah. What? Well, what's we the last usually, two salmon up the creek? <laughs> uh, cohos, usually cohos are in the fall, usually, yeah, silvers. So silvers, and what's the last one? That's the last one, silvers? Well, that's usually the last one, and, and at least here in southeast what Alaska. What are the last two salmon, Ray, that come up well, the creek in different times? Uh, dogs and then cohos. Right, so, so dogs and cohos could, by accident, come up together... And right. then they their 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 sperm spreading is generalization. What is yes, that called when they hybridization or introgression? But the interesting thing is that chums and cohos are reproductively isolated. You can make hybrids oh. in a hatchery, but somehow they're different enough. They don't like each other, or the timing oh. is wrong, or the kind of gravel that they each like is just different enough and preserved so that the only ones that really get together and are fertile are the chums and pinks. Interesting. Okay, and that's that's what I see here in Ketchikan Creek. Over the years, I've been walking down to the creek here for 38 years. I look at Ketchikan Creek, and I've seen years where it's solid humpies, solid humpies, solid humpies. And then I see a few dogs, you know, maybe the next year in there. And actually, I saw the, there was a period about four or five years ago, it was pretty much all dogs and just a few humpies. But they're mm -hmm. in there kind of together. Their, their runs kind of overlap a little bit. And so they're genetically close enough so that they can actually have fertile offspring, right? Yeah. The, we have the chumpies then. Yes. But I don't know that I can distinctly see. Uh, but can you can you see this in the fossil record? That's what you're seeing. You can actually see these split apart, come back. I mean, that's that's pretty. Uh, I don't find them in the fossil record because my work is mostly way up in the headwaters in Idaho, and uh, those two species tend to spawn way down, much closer to the sea. So we've never found any fossils of those hybrids. But what you're really saying with this hybridization is that the tree of evolution is a lot more uh, like complicated. A vine? It's more like a vine to come back into each other. And, and I've been getting my head around, uh, I've been reading David Quammen's book on horizontal gene transfer, Yes, the tangled tree, and that's kind of blowing my mind. So they're really... The Darwinian idea is it's simple branching, 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 that sometimes it comes back together, and especially at the very base of the tree, there was a whole lot of back and forth between the archaea and the eukaryotes, and my mind is blown, but you're saying, <laughs> and it probably happened with our own species, right? We're out with Homo sapiens, and the right. tangled branch of humanity is... Well, and many of us have genes from Neanderthals, and that's pretty easily... Well, not easily. It must have been very difficult. Well, at I first. saw I saw Ray's uh, DNA twenty three and Me. He has eighty percent Neanderthal compared to my one percent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't I'm proud try, of it Ray. Too, man. Jerry, I'm proud of Jerry, it. I got a question. So I did a lot of uh, rabbit hole or salmon hole diving uh, 
prior mm. to our uh, interview with you. And do you know or can explain what a genome duplication event is? Because it comes up in all the Salmania. Salmani. Salmonidae. Salmonidae. <laughs> it comes up in all the Salmonidae research. What is genome duplication event? I cannot get my head around that. Okay. Well, uh, let's take suckers and minnows for an example. Minnows have 50 chromosomes in each cell. Suckers have 100 chromosomes in each cell. And if you look at them, at the sucker chromosomes, you can trace them back to minnows and infer from the sequences and the genes on the chromosomes that there was a genome duplication within the minnow-type fish probably at the end of the Cretaceous, say 60 million years ago. And, the, and it probably came about through hybridization, at least I think so. Two oh. species of minnows hybridized, and because um, of some inability of the cell and its parts to control all of these new chromosomes, they stayed in every cell. And so as a consequence, every sucker now is descended from that hybridization event and has 100 chromosomes. But having more chromosomes gives you more advantage as a species in the environment? Yes, I would say so. Not everyone would agree with that. But it seems to me <laughs> suckers are bigger. They grow fast. And the same thing. Oh, wait, what, what, what do we mean by sucker? Talk to me. What is a oh, sucker? Is it uh, okay? It's an offshoot. Mean like a of the minnow branch, and the examples are the long-nosed sucker, the uh, klamath suckers, the lake suckers. There are about sixty-five species in North America. And are these like catfish, or no? do they actually suck onto another fish? No, no, they. They got a sucker-like mouth. They vacuum oh, okay. up bugs from the bottom. They were actually oh, right. very good smoked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a big... And you know, Dave, there's a sucker born every minute. <laughs> ah, yes, my dear friend. Uh, no, I thought it was every day. Sucker born every day. But... No, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, P.T. Barnum said that. We'll, we'll, we'll Google that one. Yeah, well, suckers and giant minnows. I, I, lo I love the oxymoronic phrase, giant minnows. There used to be right. giant <laughs> minnows in North America, right, Jerry? That's right. In the Colorado River, there's a relative of the big predators in the Columbia River or the Sacramento River. But in the Colorado River, they got five feet long. And I've seen pictures of them uh, wow. with the gill slit hanging from the saddle horn on a pretty good-sized horse and tail touching the ground. Wow. Well, you know, uh, I know that you, you spent your life digging fossils, and you've been retired for 20 years. You're doing a lot of work and, uh, you know, writing up a lot of stuff. But it, Keith was telling me, your son Keith Smith was telling me that you guys would go uh, fossil hunting every summer. You'd pack the whole family up. You'd go out to... Uh, southern oregon and idaho and he brought me back a fossil once uh and he called it well here's some baby teeth and they look like baby teeth but these were actually the teeth of these gigantic minnows right is that what you guys would refer to them in the family there they are teeth from 
pretty large minnows that lived in the lakes uh, three to six million years ago in the Snake River Plain. How big are these minnows? Uh, probably 30, 40 pounds, shaped like a carp. Oh, that's a big yeah. minnow. <laughs> but that's a big, big minnow. I the interesting really cool. thing about them is that the teeth that uh, Ray is speaking of are, are molars. They're not like fish teeth at all. They're little yeah. molars, and they go in the throat, and they work sideways back to each other rather than like our jaw teeth. And with these molars, they were very successful because the molars were for crushing snails. And these geological formations have more snails, different kinds of snails and clams than any other lake in the world. So they were very successful. The Oregon Trail happens to go through these old ancient lake beds. And the settlers found these <laughs> little bones with molar teeth on them. And so they're the people who started calling them baby jaws. Oh, wow. Okay, that's cool. Wow. So in all these years of digging fossils, and uh, has there been a spectacular fossil moment for you, a kind of eureka moment, uh, a fish skull that fell in your lap or some great, great memory of a fossil find? Yeah, except I didn't find it. My buddy, Bruce Wilkinson, the geologist, was with it, and he found it uh, just ahead of me. But it's a big char skull uh, wow. that's about twice, well, it's about this, twice the size of a normal big dolly varden or big brook trout, but uh, only about half the size of our spike tooth. <laughs> and he found the skull. The skull is in much better shape. The jaws are present. The top of the skull is present. There's more to it, this particular skull that Bruce found, than the type specimens of these spike tooth salmon. And that opened up the whole world. Was that a new species, a new genus? Yeah, it, yeah, it's it was a new genus and a new species. Wow! Wow! You know, you know, fossil envy. Uh, your your partner found that uh, fossil envy is is kind of an ugly thing, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I have a question. So, with with the millions and millions of salmon that spawn and then die in these rivers, and the skeletons getting washed downstream, and the birds picking at them. Uh, I would think there would be layers upon layers of fish bone fossil beds from these great spawning events. Are there? The best one I know of is on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington, where in the Pleistocene, there was obviously a spawning area that lasted for many generations, many thousands of years. And in the clay of that formation, uh, at the head of this this Kokomish. And there are, I have one photograph that was taken through the water because it was underwater when I was there of maybe 10 fish just lying one on top of the other in a big flat carpet of fish. And they're fossils. They're fossils, yeah. Yeah, I've been to that site. You did that paper with David Montgomery. And, That's uh, right. Did, it's, right. A, it's a great site. So it's a good little, good little spot. Maybe Dave... I'll take you there sometime, but there are, you can see, they're just layers and layers of uh, wow. so, they're sockeye salmon from a million years ago, though. Wow. Right? Yeah, right. Wow, an amazing spot. 
So in all of the, you have described and named a number of genera and species in your career, have you not? That hasn't been my main activity. Uh, other people describe other people, them and name them when I have to. But I'm trying to switch our influence, our field a little bit, not to pursue the glamour of trying to name new things and making that the point of my career. I see. My point is to try to oh. figure out how the world works and how these salmon evolved and how they got the way they are and how they all relate to the local ecology and especially geology. So I'm happy if somebody else goes to the trouble of naming them. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> most of my colleagues kind of evaluate their own careers based on how many new kinds they name. You want to name a new kind, I see. they drop the subject and go looking for another new kind to name. And that has gone so far that right now, unfortunately, they're not finding new fish to name, except in museums. They're splitting up old species and naming two new species. I see. And they're getting their publications that way. Well, let me ask you kind of a big question then. And I remember mm -hmm. when you came up, uh, you did a talk here in Ketchikan to the community, and there were a lot of salmon fishermen that showed up, and it was really cool for you to kind of walk through the evolution of these remarkable fish that so much of our world depends on here in the Northwest. Do you see the future of salmon... Um, are they going to do okay here in the long run with all the pressures that we put on them? You, you, you know about them through deep time. What is your outlook for salmon in the future? They've been through some really terrible times, especially cutthroat trout that are further south and are at kind of the wet, moist tops of the mountains where the water is fed by snow. Those cutthroat trout have been through so much that uh, I expect that they'll last longer than we do. And the, the salmon surely will too, because they've got all these rivers, even when global warming pushes them all up north of the Arctic Circle, there will still be salmon habitat in the sea and in the tributaries. Wow. And what is the mother of all salmon? What is the name of that? Eosalmo. Eosalmo. From, From the, the, the mid-Eocene? Yeah. That's from the Eocene, and that's the dawn salmon. That's The Eo means oh, dawn. okay. But I, I remember, Jerry, that in the end, you did you did say that, you know, uh, salmon are resilient, uh, and uh, they will probably outlive whatever we throw at them. It doesn't mean we should just not take care of, you know, right. harvest them responsibly, be very aware of changing ocean environments, doing what we can, protecting habitat, riparian zones, et cetera. But uh, yeah, if anything, there's a lesson to be learned. Uh, you know, life will find a way. Um, and we are very vulnerable as uh, big-brained primates, and uh, the fish might do okay. They should. We still have the capacity to destroy them in so many different yeah. ways. But I think the best way to present this is with a little bit of hope that I hope will inspire us to take better care of their habitats. In the Great Lakes region, you've done the, the Fishes of the Great Lakes guidebook. What's the situation there with the Great Lakes and the fish populations, and I guess? Well, hasn't the Great Lakes pretty much, they've cleaned up their act the last 30 years, and uh, species have recovered, and water clarity has, uh, has uh, returned? 
But the carp are threatening now, too. Well, you have invasive so. species, yeah. Yeah, people are, are very aware of all of those possible things that might hurt the Great Lakes, fishes and the water. And part of the value of the fishes in the Great Lakes region is as indicator species of when the water is turning bad for humans, the fish will be the first to tell us because uh, they're the the so-called canaries in the coal mine. What caused all the alewife, the alewives <laughs> fishes? When I, when I lived in the, uh, I lived to the North Shore of Chicago, and uh, mm. we'd have these great die-offs of alewives, they were called. Uh, they'd litter the beaches. Was that right. man-made, or was that some sort of algae bloom? Oh, a little bit of everything. It started out that they are non-native fishes in the Great Lakes. Oh. When the Welland Canal was dug to get the water flow from, from the Mississippi to the Chicago? No, from the St. Lawrence River uh, around Niagara Falls and up into the upper Great Lakes for shipping purposes. The first the, ones, right. The alewives took advantage of that and moved into the Great Lakes and their populations exploded to many, many millions in the 60s, and that's what you saw. The early 70s. The, then the history got really interesting because guys from the Michigan DNR went out to Oregon and they made arrangements to purchase uh, millions of eggs and sperm and eventually a juvenile fish, brought back to Michigan, raised them in hatcheries, and put cohos and chinooks in the Great Lakes. And there for a few years in the 60s, those cohos and chinooks were eating the alewives and grew to record sizes. So you find the record cohos and chinooks are from Lake Michigan. <laughs> that's, but, that's wild. Uh, from the standpoint of uh, two big species of salmon, it took them a couple of decades, three decades or more, to go through this food supply, and now they are sh small, skinny fish. They're no longer the great Chinooks that they used to be when they had a lot of alewives to eat. And so we need more prey species right now. And so I think we've got to quit worrying so much about these carp because they make babies that would be just perfect for these salmon. Right. But I don't right. dare say that. Obviously, nobody else oh, wait, is listening. We just recorded you day. saying that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, because they just dug a canal. They have a canal between Chicago and the Mississippi. Right. Uh, with these electrified gates that keep right. the carp from coming back from the Mississippi into the Great Lakes. Theoretically, they do that. The carp, two species of them, but one especially, the silver carp, keeps showing up in ponds around Chicago. And you can just guess, if you look back to what we were all like when we were 16, how they're getting there. Because they're not <laughs> swimming through those electric barriers. Right, right. <laughs> so there are still salmon in the lake in the great lakes and they're the pacific salmon yeah they're the coals but they're a nat there's a nat they want to go to the sea what's how, well, they must get confused what's well the great lakes contain one-fifth of the fresh water of the whole planet so 
from their standpoint, except for the lack of salt, they are growing up out to sea. It just happens to be an inland sea that's not salty. And then they swim up the tributaries to spawn. And Chinooks are successful at doing that. Cohos pretty much have to be purchased from the West Coast and brought in and planted to keep them going. They're not quite as successful at reproducing themselves as the schnooks. Aren't they going to wreak havoc with the existing ecosystems? They're an introduced fish. Right. They've done more more good than harm from the standpoint of fishermen and also from the standpoint of, of managers because those alewives were a terrible public health problem when they would show up on the beaches by the millions and millions, causing a lot of expense to clean them up and bury them in dry holes somewhere. So the salmon solved that problem and provided a lot of good <laughs> recreation and a whole industry of charter boats uh, that have been, in some ways, the most successful ecosystem the Great Lakes have ever had. Wow. And where is that going to end up, though? And It never ends up good. <laughs> when, we, when we humans introduce animals, it never ends up good. Well, in this case, it did. And if it's done very carefully and scientifically in the future, they could they could keep this going. How, how do they get along with the walleye there? You know, a walleye are big in uh, the lakes, are they not? The walleyes tend to spawn and live in slightly warmer water down in the southern part well, especially in the Lake Erie area. Lake Erie is, Erie is smaller, shallower, and much warmer, warmer than the big lakes. And so there's no important interaction between salmon and walleye or wow. perch. Good to know. Good to know. So, Jerry, let me ask you this. We, we ask all our guests this. If you could go into the past, if you could time travel into the past, is there a period of time that you would like to go back to and, and what period is that and what would you want to see? Yeah, well, sent in this direction, mostly by you, Ray, I would love to go <laughs> see those big spike tooth salmon and see <laughs> what they're eating, how they, how they migrate, how they react with each other, where they spawn and the spawning of those nest-building salmon must have been just amazing to see. And that's where I would go. I would sit on the beach wow. and watch for spike-toothed salmon to come upstream. <laughs> Are there any fossils of their eggs or, or fry? No, no. Mm, those well, things... actually, well, Jerry found the, the dwarf species, yeah. the small versions of them. But yeah. that's, not a, that's not a baby salmon. That's just a dwarf species, right? right? Yeah. Correct. But... Yeah. They're... What I think is so weird about these guys is they've got this weird lower jaw with, you know, besides the spikes, there's really, there's only the teeth up. That's the only teeth in the upper jaw. In the lower jaw, there's really no teeth other than a couple here out in the end of the, you know, snout, out of the end of the chin. And uh, I would definitely want to uh, go to that fishing hole with you as well. And how would we, since you're plankton feeders, do you think they would still respond to uh, like a number two lure or something like that or a hoochie? <laughs> I don't think Why? I don't think about that. Uh, unlike you guys, <laughs> I've killed so many fish in my life that now I'm convinced 
they're better off alive than dead. They do us more good. <laughs> you, you've told me that your work indicates they're the uh, sister species of a sockeye salmon, the, the revered yeah. red sockeye salmon. Right. And they're this larger than a king salmon, which is oily and great tasting. Man, I can only imagine what a spike tooth salmon would taste like, but that's me. They would be oily, all right. <laughs> <laughs> there might be some DNA in there that we could extract and actually do some hybridization, Jerry. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jerry, uh, I'm uh, I'm in awe of your great body of work. And uh, you've written uh, somewhere around 130 papers. It's just just amazing. And, and I'm in awe of, of, your, of your dedication. The question I'd like to ask you... Um, what advice can you give me to, how do I determine in, in this shifting world of social media where people are posting garbage daily, how do I sift through all this garbage as to what is real and what is science? Well, that's getting harder and harder to figure out. You never know what's going to turn out to be good science. You have to wait a hundred years to tell. And here's the, an example of that. You mentioned a little while ago, uh, Ray did, about the Darwinian old ideas. And it turns out that in this hybridization thing that I'm working on, you go back to Darwin's work. And Darwin had figured out the fact that there were networks of hybridization among everything he saw. Uh, all the plants that he raised in his greenhouses, all of the diversity you see of interbreeding dogs among the horses, among pigeons, all the things that he raised, there was interfertility among all of these things. The so-called improvement kinds of progressive, the progress of science has gotten away from Darwin rather than followed him. And they came to the conclusion that in order to be a species, they can't hybridize with other species. Darwin knew that that was not true, but most people today and most of the textbooks think that that's true. So you don't know what's good mm. science and what's not until you look at the consequences year on into the future. Right. Wow. The scientific process can be messy and prolonged and... Uh, Maybe sometimes takes centuries to get uh, to get it right. Science is dynamic. Science, um, science is science, though, and it's just not. It's kind of messy, right? Well, it's run by humans. Science doesn't care what you believe because it just <laughs> is, right? Wow. Well, on that point, I think we should say thank you for joining us, Jerry. This has been a, a real honor, and uh, I hope you can get back up here to catch a can sometime. We'll go out and look at some spawning salmon together. and Or, you know what? I think I might be able to get back to Michigan yeah. and see some spawning salmon there, I miss perhaps. the Midwest. I miss the Great Lakes. I miss the summers and the fireflies. Yeah, well, come and visit us if you get a chance. Uh, you're always welcome. It would be right. fun to continue talking about these things. Maybe with a little something to drink. <laughs> a little something that will help it all go down. If we have a beer or two or maybe get into the whiskey. But uh, hey, right. thank you, Jerry, so much for joining us. And uh, it's been uh, enlightening and uh, really thought-provoking. 
as it always is whenever I spend thank time you, with Jerry. you. Well, it's Appreciate fun to talk to today. both of you. Okay. All right. Thanks. Bye. See you, Jerry. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that was incredible. And what are the odds that this article I read when I went to Death Valley about this oh, um, yeah. miracle... Um, the pupfish. Yeah, the pupfish in this aquifer that only exists in this one place on the planet. He's got it on his hat. Yeah, that was pretty That was pretty wild. Was, is, is he working on those? Or is there a pupfish society? Where can I get a hat like that? Uh, I don't know, but uh, I do remember that they were so concerned with this pupfish. Now, you know, obviously the the anti-pupfish people are like, ah, just kill them. What, what do we need a pupfish? No, really, what do we need a pupfish for? They're tiny. They do, does it impact my life? But, you know, the idea is that every living creature on this planet has a right to exist, except... Parasites. I don't like ticks, and I don't like... I was going to say, I thought we were going to say spiders, yeah, but... Uh... Spiders? I love spiders. They eat the bad things, but... Right, and they're related but, to trilobites. They are, but ticks. But anyway, yeah, um, what they did was they created this completely exact copy of this grotto, and they moved the pupfish into it, so... So, like, that's in someone's backyard or something? No, the it's out in the desert somewhere. It's oh, in yeah? a national... It's in a, a park or a wilderness area. It's... How could there be anti-pupfish people? I just... Dude! Anti-pupfish. They're so about, cute. Okay, do you want to go back to logging and the spotted owl? Come on. Um, all right, let's not go yeah, there. Come on. All right, okay. On. All right. Come on. Humans are basically... We're selfish, and we're ruining our planet, and that's it. Goodbye. Okay. All right, on that happy note, we'll wrap it up, Dave. Well, actually, you know, Dave, I gotta say, uh, you did your homework, man. I'm very impressed. You uh, know your Salmonid, your Salmonidae. Oh, it's hard. It's hard. I can't even pronounce it. Salmonidae. Oh, Salmonidae. There go your curtains, got, as always. Yeah, there's there's my magic curtains. Yeah, Hold on. It was just Dave's magic curtains. No, no, there they are. Anyways, hey, Dave, it was a great episode, and uh, on we go, man. Stack it up well, the you episodes. Well, you, you thanked me. You thanked me because uh, you love fish and you love salmon. And Jerry is special to you, isn't he? He really is a hero. And uh, I've had the honor of actually working with him. And, and uh, we heard today, he said, like, well, thanks to my, I just, I was pressing him on. Tell me about this spike tooth, saber tooth, salmon, tusk tooth. And he was the go-to guy. And uh right. And I really wanted, like, the world's authority, and I consider Jerry the world's authority on fossil fishes of North America. He is. To give me a scientific answer on how big the salmon was and uh, how much it weighed, you know, how much, how, what was the size and length. And, and he did the calculations. And it wasn't just like, oh, the vertebrae is this big, and so if you got a 50-pound fish, because there's a lot of, you know, morphologic things, the, the anatomy right, changes when right. you get really big. So, right. but he came in with conservatively saying eight feet and 400 pounds. Right. But you did hear him say, could have been a little bit bigger. And he actually said maybe even 800 pounds. Wow. Imagine an 800 pound salmon, man. They find sturgeon, freshwater sturgeon up to a thousand pounds. True that. All right. Very true. But uh, you noticed too that he didn't want to eat that salmon. I wanted to eat the salmon. That's how basic yeah, I am. Yeah. But I like that because I'm kind of getting against. The idea of, kill, of killing, of killing any animal, yeah. Anything with eyes. Anything yeah. with eyes, and mm. and and that could cry. Could eat worms. By could the way, test pound, 
is always less than the pound of the fish you want to catch. Unless you want to, you know, winch them in. Okay. <laughs> I'll winch them in. Yeah. Hey, with All that, right, Dave, buddy. always fun talking to you, man. That was great, Ray. And uh, thanks for your time and signing off from Ojai, California. Signing off from Ketchikan, Alaska. Beautiful, rainy old K-Town by the sea. Funky town, but I love this town. <laughs> Funky little town. Okay. All right. Signing Bye, off, Bye, Ray. See ya. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd.